0: it feels like this era has just been like the like the 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 plagues descending on hollywood it's like you've had the me too things before that you had the screaming wars come in and uh, overturn the whole apple cart of, of of hollywood's arrangements you've had the bottom falling out and kind of the middle ground of movies um in the indie world you've had uh, racial uh concerns you've had animal rights uprisings around these all of which are like they're all totally valid things, and there's stuff that stuff that Hollywood, either from a ethical standpoint or a business standpoint, should have should have addressed decades ago. It was just Hollywood has shielded itself off, and it's become this place now where it's where where the where the core of business is very much uh, in jeopardy.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Culturally Relevant, a podcast about film, television, art, and culture. I'm David Chen, and today I'm going to be speaking with writer Richard Rushfield from TheAnkler.com, a great newsletter that I recommend you check out. Why did I invite Richard Rushfield on to Culturally Relevant this week? It's because I am getting pretty sad about the state of the film industry, friends, You know, in the pre COVID world, going to movie theaters is one of my favorite activities. I used to go once, twice, maybe even three times a week. I would love getting lost in the glow of an amazing film with some strangers. And unfortunately, in the COVID world, it's something that is really not a great activity to do in public right now. Um, I, I haven't really seen any movie theaters that I have felt comfortable going to. You know, they'll have mask mandates, they'll clean a lot of things, but. Um, ultimately, uh, you can take off your mask if you're uh, eating or drinking something. And so some people don't even put them on and you're sitting there and sharing air with people for a couple hours uh, with complete strangers. And it's just like, it's probably, probably not a good idea uh, to do this in the era of COVID, at least until we have a cure or treatment for COVID or a vaccine. And those things are still a little bit ways off. COVID has exacerbated trends that were already occurring in the entertainment industry. Obviously, streaming services are very desirable today as a source of entertainment. Uh, and people were going to movie theaters less and less, opting for online options, uh, for streaming services for TV, etc. Uh, and not only that, like artistically, that's where many of the most interesting stories are told these days. So... Uh, Movie going was already kind of at a crossroads pre-COVID and now it finds itself in a very, very dire state. Who better to talk with that about than writer Richard Rushfield? Richard Rushfield's a journalist and an author. Uh, He's written three books and his writing has appeared in the Los Angeles Times, Gawker, and BuzzFeed. He's also the creator and editor-in-chief of The Ankler, which he describes as the newsletter Hollywood loves to hate and hates to love, a fearless, unvarnished dissection of what's really shaking our world today. You can subscribe to the newsletter at theankler.com. And I'm a big fan of this newsletter. I think it really introduces a lot of perspectives and analyses that are different than what you'll find in most other movie websites, in most other entertainment publications. I can't recommend it enough. I don't always agree with what Richard says, but I always find it to be worth considering. So I hope you enjoy this conversation I have with Richard and stick around afterwards for weekly recommendations. Um, And I also want to point out before we begin today that I got to thank all the people who are making Culturally Relevant possible, specifically my executive producers on my Patreon at patreon.com slash Dave Chen. Huge thanks to Stephen Austin, Jonathan Sutton, Christopher Yimon, Dan Flanagan, Jeff Evans, and Mark C. Warner, Y'all are amazing. Y'all are helping me get through this uh, whole situation intact and keeping me productive and inspired to make new work. If you want to support me on the Patreon, go to patreon.com slash Dave Chen. That's patreon.com slash Dave Chen. Find more episodes of this podcast at culturallyrelevantshow.com and follow this podcast on Twitter at CREFshow. That's C-R-E-V-S-H-O-W. Or uh, if you want to support me without donating anything, Leave a review for Culturally Relevant on Apple Podcasts. It really means a lot. All right. All that said, here is my conversation with Richard Rushfield from The Ankler. Richard Rushfield, thanks so much for joining me today. How are you doing today, Richard?
0: I'm great, David. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be here.
1: It's great to chat with you I'm a huge fan of The Ankler, but before we get to what's happening in Hollywood right now, why don't we talk about breaking in stories? I like to discuss breaking in stories on the podcast um how How would you say you first broke into the field of journalism and writing
0: I'm not sure I have broken in yet i i I, I feel like I'm still trying to but uh somehow i've I've got uh not not in any normal way every every time i every every time I tried to uh climb the ladder or do anything in any traditional sensible way it has been a uh, h- matter of hitting my head against the wall but uh whenever i've just done something just because i wanted to do it and thought it would be fun uh it's usually worked out and my my big my big in was actually starting a zine in the late 90s that mocked much of uh media including my my native the LA times which led to someone coming along and, and saying, well, how'd you like to come work at the LA times?
1: Uh, which, which. So you started a zine. you start, what, what, what was a zine back then? Was it like you needed uh, to contact a printer back then? Yeah. Maybe, yeah. We, yeah. Had,
0: we had printer, got a printer, had to rent a, uh, had to rent a pickup to fill up uh, with, with copies of it and put them in a storage space and then go around coffee house by coffee house and uh, try to persuade them to let us leave a stack of them there. And, They'd say, "Okay, you can leave fifteen this week." Little did I know that would be my path into a job at the LA Times. So,
1: so then you worked for the LA Times, and then Gawker, and then BuzzFeed. I did a tour of
0: the. I, I worked for all the websites, is how I like to say it. I <laughs> I did a I did a complete tour of the internet, uh, and 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 after uh, visiting after after working at a thousand doomed websites, I decided to start my own doomed uh, web project. So here I am
1: so why did you decide to start the ankler newsletter because lord knows there are enough websites on the internet that cover movies and movie news these days
0: uh you know it would in my business i'm i'm forced to read the the trade coverage of hollywood every day and um which which became which over the last 10 years became an increasingly grueling task um <laughs> Especially as it became sort of more cozy and less uh combative and investigative and i i had, and it was just this sense that so you 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 read it enough and you're a journalist at some point you have the idea that uh that you know I can do better than this and uh and also i I became kind of enthralled with the newsletter format as a way to do it like i i sort of took you back to the early days of blogging when you can actually have a Conversation with readers and it was ongoing, and you could assume they understood what you were talking about and had knowledge. Not not this world where like every every article was its own like freestanding piece of clickbait, like trying to lure in audiences who had never didn't know what a movie was, and you had to explain um, the entire system. It just it just seemed like a way to do something uh, more intelligent and interesting uh, that, that you're speaking directly to readers rather than, uh, all these other things that, that, uh, that you get, that you get caught up with working for a website these days.
1: Uh, was there an article or something that you read that was particularly galling to you? It sounds like basically like most people feel the way you feel, by the way, about stuff they read online. They read something and they get really angry because they're like, I could do this better. Usually, they transform that into a comment or a tweet, um but you actually decided to make your own uh newsletter I'm curious if there was like an article you read that was like "This is the worst like I'm just gonna <laughs> well, th- uh, yeah go ahead the,
0: the, the, it, it wasn't an article it was it was one piece of coverage it was uh so i my my last normal job was was as editor of a site called hitfix uh that that is no longer with us but uh but it was a, was a fine little site covering entertainment. We were sort of beta testing this talk show that we were trying to launch, and our film critic, Drew McQueenie, Came on it it was we we were really we were still like working out the lights and the sounds so this thing got like a hundred views every episode we,
1: we, which by the way I was one of those views I really a big fan of drew and I really enjoyed the website so drew
0: was fantastic and uh Roth who was hosting it is wonderful too uh but uh but but it, it, it still had we 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 were beset by technical difficulties so we were still working our way through um but he so he went on it and it was about it was about six eight months before Batman versus Superman came out and and he made a comment about halfway through this almost unwatched video about Batman versus Superman saying um saying the Warners marketing folks are really nervous about this one and it was I, like, I
1: remember this whole thing, yeah, I remember this it, yeah. you remember it was like the
0: gates of hell opened on
1: us like well because it was it was such an innocuous comment it wasn't like. I've and heard it, Batman v Superman is utter dog shit or anything like that, right? it and was it, yeah, there weren't even
0: details it wasn't even nervousy. Was just I heard they were really nervous about it. in the like halfway through this video that no one, that no one said. and <laughs> so later that day uh roth the the host said, well, drew said this came to me and said drew said this thing and 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 the world is going going bonkers, and people are demanding retraction. And we're getting phone calls, and people are attacking Drew. And my my first reaction to that was like, if you heard the title of Batman versus Superman, you would assume that this is a troubled project, that 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 there were going to be some challenges marketing this. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, they, just just from the title. Um, if you went a little further and maybe had seen a poster or something you would you, you you would have a sense of like there's there's some real issues here um, if you had heard the rumors from the set like 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 most of us working in the business had heard you you would know that 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 there were real serious issues uh, in progress so so my first reaction was isn't everybody saying this already of course the, of, of course it's they're nervous about this um so I went and I read every word that had been written about Batman versus Superman on the, on, on the internet, that from the trades, from fanboy sites, from, from uh message boards, from uh and nope, there was not, not a single person was saying it. It was all, here's, here's 10 things we learned on the set of Batman versus Superman. And here's a glimpse at the new, uh, at the new Batman, Boots or whatever, and here's and 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 Warner's couldn't be more excited about how it's tracking in Singapore right now, and and it was just pure hype and not a shadow of like maybe this project has has problems, which is why it incited such a reaction when we said that. And so, light bulb went on my head, and said, "If this is the line of where people aren't allowed to say anything anymore, that's a pretty big dance floor that 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 that, that the people covering Hollywood have left uh, wide open." Mm.
1: And that is the dance floor that you have tried to step onto. With there's the my origin
0: story. Yes, mm.
1: <laughs> was was Batman v Superman. Well, I mean, all of those objections to that comment were obviously justified because. That project was smooth sailing, was it not? Uh, nothing went wrong with that one. <laughs>
0: uh, as, as it turned out, uh, it, it turned out there were some problems with Vatman hmm. versus no. Superman.
1: So you created the Ankler yes. uh, because you thought, hey, um, people are kowtowing too much to the studios. Um, and I guess one of the things that I, I really appreciated is, I mean, I, I would say that the Ankler's outlook perspective uh is a fairly pessimistic one right that what i what i perceive is that there is a a lot of self-importance in hollywood that the ankler is trying to pierce is that a fair assessment
0: that's more than fair yeah yeah uh, and it's not just it's it's pomposity but it's pomposity that's kind of ruinous to to the business and uh results in bad choices and bad movies and, uh, and uh, endangers Hollywood's
1: future. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Like, yeah, bad for the business. Like it's actually financially bad. Like what are some examples of what you're describing?
0: I launched this thing two weeks before Harvey, the Harvey Weinstein revelations came out and it feels like this, era has just been like the like the, the the plagues descending on Hollywood. It's like you've had the Me Too things. Before that, you had the screaming wars come in and uh, overturn the whole apple cart of, of of Hollywood's arrangements. You've had the bottom falling out and kind of the middle ground of movies um, in the indie world. You've had uh, racial uh, concerns. You've had animal rights uprisings around these, all of which are like they're all totally valid things, and there's stuff that stuff that Hollywood, either from a ethical standpoint or a business standpoint, should have should have addressed decades ago. It was just Hollywood has shielded itself off, and it's become this place now where it's where where the where the core of business is very much uh, in jeopardy because of that, because they failed to attract new new viewers. They've they they've, they've been such an insular culture, um, largely run by the same people who have been running it since. The late eighties or early nineteen nineties, um, and, uh, I, I, and and they're just failing to attract new audiences. So they've had, first of all, Netflix. They've had this little app come along and just devour the industry, um, and uh, and and now it's an open question who. You know, we we had six studios that have been here since the beginning of Hollywood, and since the beginning of Hollywood, only one studio, one of the only one major studio has gone away rko and we just lost one and and now there's 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 two others that that hang on the brink and and and
1: let's just identify those for people who are curious so fox fox went away got acquired by disney right yeah
0: and now sony and paramount which are the two that uh because they don't have streaming you know vigorous streaming plans seem to be uh hanging in the balance and uh every week i hear there's there's a rumor that apple has bought sony or or netflix has bought paramount or or something and uh it, people just assume that something like this is going to happen any moment uh and then you'll be down to to three of the traditional studios universal warners and disney and then you'll have apple apple amazon and netflix which you know on on, on one level like okay so you got dip, you got different owners what's the What's the big deal? But it's the it's it's kind of the legacy of the film business disappearing and with it uh, a commitment to to that business. So uh, for people that people that care about movies, it's it's uh, it's a very big deal.
1: I think that's one of the things that I really appreciate about reading the newsletter is that from the outside, I think people see the glitz and glamour of Hollywood and um, it feels really unattainable and desirable. But every time I open up the Ankler newsletter, it's always about how uh the entire Hollywood studio system hangs in the balance. And I think that, you know, I was going to ask you, what are some misconceptions that you think people have? And one of them I think is that people don't fully understand how tenuous everything is right now, right? Would you say that's accurate?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's like say Netflix has really upended the whole the whole model of of all those things and made it made it not sustainable by the end of next year half our studios very likely will be gone like i say on the one hand it's it's you, <coughs> excuse me uh, you say you say so what it's, a, it's it's different owners but they just have very they come in it with very different priorities of netflix is essentially a volume business and they they've done some big splashy things but in the end it's a it's going to be about churning out mountains of content and when you look at the big movies that i that you and I love and that have, have, uh, have changed people. It's just, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's very difficult to see how those are going to have a place in this, in this business
1: going forward. Yeah. One of the things that you, uh, mentioned about like Sony and Paramount, right? They don't have robust streaming businesses right now. Um, I guess you're not a crackle subscriber, Richard, <laughs> but, uh, or, uh, they also don't have, they don't uh, have an abundance of big franchises either. Right. Like, um, disney has you know marvel and star wars and these massive billion dollar franchises and sony has there's a spider verse uh, yeah Sp- spider verse they have a uh, bond still right is that right uh bond is, um,
0: has gone to mgm
1: but uh, got it yes um and then paramount is transformers and mission impossible right those are their kind of big
0: performance yeah they're trans- we'll see if Maybe Top Gun will will yeah. the will spawn a thousand remakes or something now, but uh, yeah, I mean they have they they have odds and ends there, and they're trying to they have their they're they're trying to revive the Simpson Bruckheimer catalog and dig deep into into Nickelodeon hits from from the nineties and everything else.
1: Yeah, but it has felt like uh, without a bank of like large franchises, you know, temples, four quadrant movies, uh, hard for, uh, a lot of studios to make huge profits at the, the theatrical box office pre COVID pre COVID. Yeah. Now. And... Yeah. So let, let, let's talk about pre COVID. All right. Um, so pre COVID Richard, you were not super, uh, bullish on Netflix, right? Um you were really trying to let the air out of that Netflix bloom whenever you could. So t- talk to me a little bit about why you felt Netflix was a little bit overpraised or too revered in Hollywood.
0: Journalism has has fallen over itself for the for the Netflix success story. And 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 just to be fair, what what Netflix has achieved is extraordinary and something no one would have believed possible and I you know if I had been around to mock it when they were when when they were uh what was the name of the the eli roth series that uh started
1: start uh Memphis. oh yeah um <laughs> why i i can't <laughs> exactly. even, i can't even think of it but i know what you're referring to it's when, um Hemlock Grove Hemlock, Hemlock Grove, Grove.
0: I, right. I would have been the first to say Hemlock Grove shows that uh, that <laughs> that when tech people get into this world what disasters are going to have and uh, hope they learned their lesson and won't try, won't try that again and they have they have gone from that to a place where they were last year spending more money on production than every studio combined which is uh extraordinary thing and Hollywood has never seen anything uh anything like that but they the the problem was they were spending more money than 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 they're earning. What you had was this this hyped up company where people were talking about this miracle, um, and and because of that they were ba- they were basically getting cheap money to spend. The shares of a of a studio are, are based on PE ratio, the price you're earning per share, which for typical con- companies is is uh, somewhere around fifteen. So if you're uh if you earn a dollar per share it's uh you, you trade it 15 times that i, I, I the, the the point of this is is that they were given these valuations uh netflix way beyond what any other company got so they essentially got cheap cheap money to pour back into the business and and make be able to make as much uh as many shows and and movies as everybody else combined.
1: Yeah. A Uh, a typical price per earning ratio is like, like you said, 13 to 15. Netflix is as of right now is around in the nineties, right? So they're, they're valued far higher than other studios and that allows them to achieve a cost of capital that's lower than other studios.
0: And only, only of, of, of companies, forget about studios or companies, I think only Amazon is, is in that, is in that zone at all. But uh, even Apple isn't. But it so it allows them to have a lot of money to, to to do a lot of stuff. And my my point was, yeah, sure. If you spend as much money as everybody else in the world, you can attract a lot of viewers and a lot of subscribers. At, at some point, you have to pay the bills. You get to a point where if you make a thousand dollars, you have a thousand dollars to spend, and you don't have. You don't make a thousand dollars and have a million dollars to spend. When when you get to that point, either you have to cut back what you produce enor- enormously, um, or you acquire you acquire somebody on debt, or you do you do all sorts of uh, of uh, shenanigans to keep it alive. And it just it just seemed a totally unsustained model in, in the way of the tech world it was sort of set out to drive drive all the competitors out of business so that they could have monopoly control over all of entertainment at which point they could stop having to pay these insanely high prices to everybody and, and, and control the pricing the effect of this is that people at the very 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 top have gotten a ton of money and done really well on this um you have a and then you have a lot of people uh employed for the lowest possible wages uh, and by the way, Netflix is non is is much of the workforce is non unionized, and, and uh, while while the rest of Hollywood is is very unionized, uh, maybe the most heavily unionized workforce in in America, and it just and it just drives out the middle. And I ask like, what is Hollywood essentially in the end? It's like the the studios are holding companies, and they re- they release it and everything, but the, but it, Hollywood is a consortium of of talent of actors and writers and lighting people and marketing people and all these people that know their business very, well and have have built up a good reputation and know how to do things at a very high level. And if you drive out the middle of this, um, you know, and you, you see it happening in effects like uh, you've seen like all the effects houses of the world, except for a few have, have shut down in recent years because, because of this, and then you're just you're you're just not going to have people that are going to be able to make movies at that level anymore, and that's that's kind of the the long term effect that I that the the apocalypse that I fear. Uh, right.
1: So, I mean, that's what you were worried about, and to some degree still are. Was that Netflix was motivated by different incentives, and that uh, it was squeezing out the middle and so on, um, and that they were very overvalued. Um, one of the things that I think you've taking them to task quite a bit about is that they they have some hits but they also have more at bats than other studios do because they're making so much content by quantity, right?
0: Yeah, vastly more and and at some point, I don't know when and I mean assuming you don't if you if you can't drive all your competitors off the field, which is which is what they're trying to do, at some point you know you've got A dollar becomes a dollar, and if everyone has a thousand dollars to spend, it's a question of who spends it best and who uh, makes the best uh, shows with it. And I just think their hit miss ratio, while they've produced lots of great things and lots of lots of great stuff, you know, they better because they're producing so much, Um, and their hit miss ratio doesn't suggest that they'll be well positioned to win that.
1: So. That was pre-COVID. Th- those were your worries about the industry pre-COVID. Now COVID has hit. Netflix is positioned real good now mm-hmm. uh, because, I-, I mean, I'm pretty sure they said recently on an earnings call, something along the lines of, it, 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 like, we don't know how much how many more subscribers we can get because if you haven't subscribed by now, we don't know what could make you. Uh, something along those lines, if I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously a lot of people are staying at home. Uh, and Netflix has benefited enormously from this. So, where at first you thought, "Hey, uh, these guys are overvalued, and who knows what's going to happen with them?" Now, uh, they seem to be positioned real well. H- how have your opinions on Netflix changed in the last six to eight months?
0: The thing that I warned about, I said, I said, uh, "You're doing great now, but, but the, but the, but the big boys are coming, so you better watch out," because I saw. I saw that the other companies were making their, their streaming plans and uh, and th- these were companies with a lot more entertainment experience and a lot more history of that and they, you know, HBO was the gold standard of of programming and all. to date the others except for Disney has all have all failed. And Disney hasn't even really tried to take on Netflix directly as much as dominate a niche there. Um, that may be changing now but we'll see. Um, so they've, nobody has, has, has even mounted a serious challenge to Netflix, uh, for this, this spot. And, you know, it, it there, there does become some time when it, it becomes the default service. And it's, I think it becomes harder and harder for, for, to get people to try something new. Um, you look at like, you know, Apple TV, they can't give their app away. They can't, they can't get people to activate it even as they, they give it for free. So it's, the, that, that, that shows you where the barrier, uh, is right now. I I think my forecast of the future and, and, and what a Netflix dominance means, uh, hasn't changed, but, uh, but for the medium term, I think their position is much more solid than it was at the beginning of the year.
1: So I want to ask you, uh, about, I guess your outlook on things right now, um, I called you uh, or I I asked you to be on the podcast because I wanted to talk with you about how you're feeling about things. Because I have to say, I'm pretty depressed at this point about the entertainment industry specifically, right? Uh, If you had told me at the beginning of the year, hey, Dave Chen, at the end of this year, it's possible that theatrical film going will no longer be a thing, like ever. Uh, I would be pretty stunned. I, I was not emotionally ready for that you know what i mean yeah and uh you know i i know you write very um bitingly about hollywood but my guess is a part of you still loves movies or loves the industry to some degree where do you see this all going because my sense is at some point we're gonna get out of this but the theatrical film going industry will have been completely laid waste to yeah and uh I mean, I mean, people are pushing movies back, you know, to 2021, fall of 2021. And it's like, wh- what is the theatrical film going industry even going to be, be looking like at that point? Like, are there even going to be movies to show this thing at that point? Uh, movie theaters to show this thing at that point, you know, um, feels to like my prediction on the Slash Filmcast is that like movie theaters will be like roller rinks, you know, like yeah. roller rinks still exist. You know, you can still go to one. Yeah. <laughs> um, people can still enjoy going to a roller rink. But they do not occupy a major spot in the popular imagination. Uh they'll become a very like specialized experience. And maybe even with the lifting of the consent decrees, you'll see like Disney buying up movie theaters or launching their own movie theaters and charging like a hundred bucks a pop to get like a special Avatar 2 experience or something like that. But movies will no longer become like a will will no longer be like a mass uh population activity anymore. Is I mean, is my yeah. sense. So the fact is
0: think? that the, the, the fact is that for the the vast majority of people that was already the case. Yeah. So so they 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 were already gone. I mean it was it was it, it's it's like I say, the average the average American goes to movies once every two years, I think. It's like it's 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 like it, it's they've already so it was already a niche audience of movie fans that was going to these things that were that every now and then you had an event like uh Endgame that drew drew other people out of the house. So that was why everyone was trying for that particular jackpot. Um, the 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 problem is that the middle fell out. That that you just you've you've just had so many sort of, uh, uh, of of middle movies that don't play anymore and can't find audiences, and that and you know that movies that movies that cost forty million and need to make a hundred million to survive, and then they end up making thirty million. So it's just these giant tentpoles, and the the it's like, can the, the theater survive if every studio just puts out four movies a year? Like, does that give them enough, enough inventory to keep, to keep the lights on there or keep the, keep the place going? Um, is, is another question. So, and, and I, I just, I mean, I, I think eventually you're going to get to some sort of hybrid model of, uh, of the theatrical and the, the VOD releases that, That create some sort of revenue stream. So somehow there will be some place for tent poles and everything. It's just do mid range movies and do small movies. Is there any place for them in theaters anymore? It's it's hard to see how that keeps going. Uh,
1: so let me ask you. I mean, what you're describing is like pre pre COVID even. I thought you know. Um, Yeah. So so with COVID, it feels actually even more dire than that. Um. So, I think
0: I think COVID is a good, it accelerates trends that were already there. Yeah, I think I, I think if if the if the industry had been healthy and going along great, then uh, it was all. It was, I mean, it's just the the mid range movie has died, and and most of the small releases have died. And you know, you don't foreign films don't get released in America anymore. That fifteen years ago, twenty years ago, that wasn't the case. It's, they don't even get small. They don't even get art house releases now. It's like it's. So that's the, that's the issue.
1: By the way, I do want to point out that your statistics are a little bit off. According to some random links I found online. I was told there'd be no math here. (laughs) Something like, uh, during a survey in June of 2019, 14% of adults visit a movie theater more than uh, once or more times per month. um, on average, 34% of Gen Xers had seen one movie within the last month compared to 43% of those in Gen Z.
0: 30% had seen movies one, one once a month? Uh, within the last month, yeah. So so what had the other 70%?
1: Yes, they're, they're not going at all. I would
0: <laughs> so <assume. laughs> there's 70% that haven't seen movies in the last month and maybe haven't seen them in the last
1: 20 months. I, oh, I agree. It's it's dire, but I, I don't think it's quite as dire as what you're describing, but it's, it's very bad. It's very bad. Uh, I mean, and it, of course- it, you know
0: Disney. Disney showed uh, Disney showed how you can still make a lot of money in theatrical, and the Disney the the, the whole Disney model and the whole flywheel that sprung off with of rides and toys and cruise ships and everything else um, was enormously successful uh, before this happened. And presu- I, I don't see anything to say that can't come back uh, as long as there was theaters to keep showing the set. Uh, it's just nobody. Nobody else had been able to replicate what Disney had.
1: Yeah, yeah. But I would say, like, if you look at random studies, it's it's probably closer to like a few times a year, as opposed to like less than once a year. Still very, very bad. Still very, very bad. Um, but not uh, not quite that dire, is my sense. That said, uh, let's change the topic real quick, Richard. I want to ask you about running your own newsletter as a business. Yes. I'm just curious. You know, as you've been doing this for a couple of years now. Um, what have you learned? Is there something you've learned that you didn't uh, anticipate uh, at the beginning of this journey?
0: I, I've been so much for last last 10 years in all these sites, like I say, where you're always concerned with, do you SEO it? What is, is this part of some larger campaign? Is it a partnership? And it's just when when you're in the newsletter business, it's it's really your, it, the, the great liberating thing about it and, and the great challenge. You're only... Uh, constituency is readers that have already made a commitment to to be with you so you don't have to think about anything else you don't have to worry about the seo it you don't have to do a story just because everybody else did it you just have to make this everything you do entertaining uh and interesting for for your own readers but the challenge of that is you have to make everything you do uh interesting and engaging for your own readers and uh that that can be a real uh a real mind trap of like you think does you think it's like is this good enough to put out is am i going to bore people with that because you just somehow in the in the silence of the newsletter space when i write something that i feel like was kind of boring or like interesting or i didn't have a great point to make i just i you know I, when i was on a regular old website i would write those things 20 times a day and who cares you're on to the next thing but somehow that just rings out so you just like these people, these readers, have made a commitment to you. They've they they paid money for this, and, and and you you this is what you've given them. You've you've just you've got to, and you 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 feel the the silence on the other end of the phone from that, and it's just it's it's a it's a real challenge. So you've got to don't get into it unless you're uh, unless you're prepared to bring your A game to uh, to every damn uh, issue you put out there because uh, that's 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 what you're promising people.
1: I'll say that I've had a similar experience launching uh, Patreon recently for this podcast and for my other work online. And uh, it it initially started with like jubilation, you know, of, oh, hey, I no longer am uh, subject to the whims of internet SEO and algorithms anymore. I just need to make this group of people happy who are paying for my work. And then you quickly realize, wait a second, I need to make this group of people who are paying for my work happy, you know. And yeah, suddenly uh, it's like
0: all your big talk. Here, here you go, <laughs> Mister.
1: <laughs> I will say that uh, my patrons are extremely supportive and understanding. And I, I, mean, I don't know what the case is for you. You probably have a lot of like in, insiders and stuff that subscribe to you, um, industry people that subscribe to you uh, who who don't know you or haven't followed your work for a while. You know, they just want they just want the down and dirty um the the news that you're breaking or the analysis that you're putting out there um many of the my patrons are like backing me because they're supporting me as just like someone who's creating stuff um and so the output is not even as important to them is my sense the, um, uh, i don't can, know what you, the case is like on the you, angle.
0: you you can you can you can tell them i i, I had a head cold this week so uh, so next week's will be better <laughs>
1: the, yeah exactly exactly the, right um, um
0: no, I, my my readers have been wonderful. They've been understanding. They 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 get it when I take a couple of weeks off in the summer and, and don't come burn my house down and demand their money back. Right. Um, so much of what I write is is been are, are thoughts that have been put in my head by my readers that who suggest I take a look at this thing or or, or you missed that story or you know you're looking at this the wrong way or just give me just give me insight and thoughts about it so it's it's really uh i mean it really has been a conversation that I hoped it would be, and uh it's been one you know of, of the pressures between between satisfying my readers or satisfying the google algorithm uh this is a far better problem to have uh so it's, it's it's wonderful, but uh, yeah, it it it's, not without
1: uh, its challenges. Not without its challenges. No, you just you, you,
0: you if if I fail, I have no one to blame but myself uh, for this. So it's,
1: indeed, uh, as you look back on the last couple of years of the Ankler, are there any stories that you feel particularly proud to have broken, or any pieces that you felt like really contributed to things? Because I'm going to say that there's been many times I've read something in the newsletter that I think to myself, I nowhere else has that kind of analysis. Uh, of this particular topic
0: the uh, you know what i i think i i don't know that there's one piece that i'm proudest of i i think i'm i i think i'm 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 just overall proudest of it. i i think i've helped break a bubble of just taking a, of 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 sort of complacency and covering the industry and taking the industry at its word and not sort of asking asking the obvious questions and and uh in questioning news releases and why there's still there's you know that's still plenty of that out there but when when i when i can pierce sort of the thought police bubble that batman versus superman is 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 destined to become the the, the greatest hit hollywood ever produced uh it is uh a good day for the ankler
1: Well, Richard, thanks so much for sharing your insights with us today. Richard Rushfield is a journalist and author. He's the author of three books, and his writing has appeared in the Los Angeles Times, Gawker and BuzzFeed. He's also the creator and editor-in-chief of The Ankler at TheAnkler.com, which he describes as the newsletter Hollywood loves to hate and hates to love. Richard, thanks for joining us today on Culturally Relevant. Thanks so much for
0: having me, for all the support, David. Really appreciate it.
1: Welcome to Weekly Recommendations. This is a part of the show each week where I recommend something I've been listening to, reading, watching, smelling, drinking, eating, etc. This week, I want to recommend an article from the Washington Post. It's called, What Are We So Afraid Of? It's told to a journalist named Eli Saslow and it's a a guy named Tony Green who at first dismissed the coronavirus, denied that he had it, uh, contracted it, spread the coronavirus uh, possibly to his family. It's a harrowing story. Uh, But a reminder of how the current pandemic that we're in doesn't care whether you believe in it or not. Now, I think there are people out there who um, have actually contracted coronavirus. They've survived. They've gotten over it, and it's been fine for them. Um, And I think there's also people who get it. They have no symptoms at all. And there's also people who get it, and it kills them. And there's people who get it, and uh, it is debilitating to them. And that's what's so fascinating and terrifying about this disease is you just never know which one of those people you're going to be. This is just one perspective uh, I do want to acknowledge, um, but it's one that I find uh, that there's probably a lot of people have to learn from. So I'd recommend you check out this article. I'll link to it in the show notes. It's called, What Are We So Afraid Of? It's in the Washington Post, uh, and it's about Tony Green's story as told to Eli Saslow. Check it out and reconsider that family gathering indoors without masks, please. All right. Uh, I also asked Richard Rushfield for a weekly recommendation. Here is what he said. Uh, so the the so something I've really enjoyed
0: uh, this th- this week. I just finished yesterday listening to the audio version of Oliver Stone's uh, memoir "Chasing the Light," and it's, it's kind of just his memoir up through platoon, sort of how he became a established filmmaker, and it's it's kind of in the category of the kid stays in the pictures of. Uh, of sort of uh, semi unhinged uh, readings of one's own story, he he, he quotes Jim Morrison at, at least once every two minutes, I would say. Uh, but he, he's also just got a great story to tell, and he's uh, he's he's, he's uh, love him or hate him, he's an amazing and really important filmmaker, and uh, he's, uh, he's, he's 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 half like I say, he's half unhinged, but uh, it was it's very fun. Listen, I think everyone will enjoy it.
1: All right, that's the audiobook of the Oliver Stone autobiography Chasing the Light, right?
0: Yes, the, the 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 first part of what I seems like will be a multi-volume memoir.
1: Thanks again to Richard for joining me today on this week's episode of the podcast. You can find more episodes of this podcast at culturallyrelevantshow.com. Email us at culturallyrelevantshow at gmail.com. Follow this podcast on Twitter at CREVshow. That's C-R-E-V-S-H-O-W. This episode of the podcast was powered by Simplecast at simplecast.com, a great podcast management and analytics solution. And it was edited and produced by me, David Chen. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week on Culturally Relevant.